This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Ian Dale is a broadcaster, author and political commentator. He hosts the podcast For The Many, and this autumn he's releasing a book, titled On This Day in Politics. Today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. I am with Ian in Edinburgh because I have just appeared on the last event of his show. So this is the first time ever that we are doing this live uh, and it has been a total pleasure, but you may hear some Edinburgh in the background. So this is Ian Dell. So hello Ian, and I'm just going to say this is the first time ever we are here live in Edinburgh, we've just done a show together, that I am doing this in real life. I wonder if that's going to affect things, because sometimes it's easier to do these things when you can't see the other person, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean I can normally see them on Zoom, but oh, right. still yeah. I am like in my house, and yeah. often what you're not going to suffer from is that I often record this uh, on uh, Thursday evening, and that's the day my son has a drum lesson in our house, so that's uh, <laughs> at least you're not dealing with that. Uh, Danny is nowhere near Edinburgh. Uh, he could be playing his drums with any, without any regard for anyone. So this is all about letter writing. Yes. Now I'm afraid to say, Ian, uh, I have people on, and some of the people I have on say, no, I don't ever write letters, and I only used to do it years ago. And those people are all people under the age of 35. Mm. So are you, and I'm going to guess you are, much of a letter writer? I used to be really a big letter writer i spent my gap year and it was very unusual in my day to do gap years yeah, in germany say, modern. yeah and i was working in a spa town in the middle of germany and i got a job in a paraplegic hospital at stoke mandeville oh, yeah. and um, it was the year i grew up i'd never really been away from home before and i would write to my mother at least twice a week and she would write back at least twice a week and not long ago probably within the last six months i discovered the whole stash of letters that i had written her i knew i was going to cry (laughs) (laughs) that would make me cry it it was it it was incredible reading through them actually because i mean things that i'd completely forgotten and 
I, I've still got her letters. I, I need to match them up one day. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is just inane stuff. <laughs> oh, your dad, my dad was a farmer, sort of your, your dad's ploughing the fields at the moment, blah, blah, blah. But, the inane stuff you miss you actually see, more, you, I think. You don't get any of that now with emails. It's not the same. I was listening to your episode with Giles mm. Brandreth and he said it's not the same on email, is it? Oh, and it's they're absolutely instantly not. disposable. Even when, I mean, I do go back sometimes and look at emails that, because when I was away from home, I would send to my mum. Um, but they, I only ever look at them when I, the Labour Party asked me to vote on anything because it's on an old email and I fake number the Labour Party, basically, is what I'm saying. And I have to, <laughs> my Labour Party emails go to a different email address. But it's not the same communication because you, you don't write the filler. You know, you don't and write the incidentals of life on an email. You just are like, by the way, your flight's going to be leaving this. I hope you're okay. Like, it's it's that sort of thing. It's not the same. And I've also got a drawer beside in the bedside, sort of little cabinet beside my bed, which has got love letters in it. Oh. And and I'm thinking, what do you do nowadays? Do you write love emails? Because you you would never also, keep like them, the would you? Like the mixtape. I was saying that my son is obsessed with old media. He's only 13. But he makes uh, he, he, he makes mixtapes. I'm like, who are you going to give these to? Like mixtapes, like, I'm going to curate you the music. I'm like, you cannot be able to give that to anyone because no one else has a tape player, no. Danny. Um, but like, yeah, like all of love, like how do you do that? How do you, there, there must be no love letters anymore. No, I don't know. We're, we're, like not, we're not to youth anymore. Yeah, but it's it's like WhatsApp messages. People will be yeah. like, and they won't be penning thoughtful, difficult things. It will be like you know he didn't. He only put one kiss. Seems to be like that. And, and also, certainly the ones I've got, and it's probably the, a lot of the ones I wrote, they go on for pages and pages and pages. Whereas emails, I mean, if you see an email that goes past the bottom of the screen, you think, oh, I'll leave that till later. Yeah, too long, didn't read. Yeah, I mean more than a sentence and I'm I've checked out on an yeah. email yeah I yeah when somebody people must still be writing love letters they, they must be like or writing love letters that never get sent they're my favorite love oh, we've letters all done that. yeah we've all the, done the that. love letter unrequited love is such it's much more passionate as it feels so oh so are people still sitting down and penning that because if you didn't have the idea of writing it just and sending it does the thing still exist where you have to write it to get it out of your yeah. system? I don't know whether it does. I'm not young. My children are not going to tell me if they're going to be writing love letters. So, but I'll ask them. I can remember the last one I wrote. It was about 1994. And I'd had this relationship with a British Airways flight attendant stereotype. Can stereotype. I just say that is the greatest cliche I've ever heard know, and cliches are cliches for and a reason. bastard didn't even take me on a cheap flight anywhere. I mean, that's the only reason quite, to go out with somebody. <laughs> and he just started ghosting me and I thought that's a bit rude and, and so I wrote him this sort of long letter saying, what on earth is going on? Why would you do that? We were, it was all going so well and um, it turned out that he couldn't cope with having a relationship and caring for his best friend who was dying of AIDS. Oh, wow. I had a pretty good reason to do it, I suppose, yeah, but yeah. it made me feel awful. Yeah. And and I can remember, because I was, shall we say, new to Gaydom at that point. Okay. And new that was game. really the first serious relationship I'd had. And it was only like three months. Um, and I can remember, I used to run a company that organised political conferences like on policies. Mm. I remember being at a conference on runway capacity in the southeast. <laughs> Times never change. Hot 
topic. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Rukatsi was the report. And um, I can remember literally breaking down in the corridor and crying my eyes out. And I'm thinking, this isn't me. I'm seen as sort of a strong person. And yet I've gone completely gone to pieces. Email, I think, had only just come in. And I, I, I think I might have had an email address, but hardly ever used it. But of course, afterwards, it was all done by email. Just if you can hear any weird noises in the background, it's because we're in a uh, we're at the Edinburgh Fringe, and there is literally no moment that <laughs> stops from announcing various shows. And if you've never been to the Edinburgh Fringe, you should come. It is you, it has to be seen to be believed. Right. It is frenetic. So I have told the story on this podcast on a number of occasions about uh, when people one person. I ask if you have letters of any letters of note, people. Lorraine Kelly had one from Tony Blair that she had on the wall. People have had them from the Queen of Denmark. But on one occasion, somebody told me that they had a letter from Christopher Biggins. That was their uh, letter of note. And it, it allowed me to tell the story about how the best WhatsApp group I have ever been in is always the one that you set up for your Edinburgh show, <laughs> where I find myself in a group. On one occasion, I was in it, it was like... Um, oh, what the name? The Hamiltons. Yeah. Um, the Hamiltons, John McDonnell, me, you, Christopher Biggins, Nicola Sturgeon. And Diamond. And Diamond. And I'm literally like, I'm in the weirdest WhatsApp group ever. And everybody has the good grace not to turn it into one of those WhatsApp groups like the ones on your road, where people are like, you know, <laughs> saying all sorts of, you know, asking questions and stuff. But it is just so delicious. The idea of being in a... WhatsApp group with John McDonnell and Christopher Biggins is not a sentence I ever thought I would say. So I've got you to thank for that, Ian. Well, so. the one this year didn't really take off, but I think it was because I, I didn't do so many entertainment or media people this yeah, year. So yeah. David Starkey and Tim Rice, and I think everybody else was a politician. Tician, yeah, but whereas that year, the Biggins year, Biggins was big on the WhatsApp. Yeah, he was, he was <laughs> yes. He was. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, he did my show and then I did his show. It's all very incestuous, this game, isn't it? Uh, so do you have any uh, letters of note that you've, like, like letters that you've framed or letters about getting a job or something? I've got one by, from Margaret Thatcher that I have oh, framed. Man. And I've also got a, a Downing Street invitation. Because when I was, um, how old would I have been? This was 1980, no, it can't have been. Eight, yeah, early 82. Mm-hmm. And I'd set up a conservative association at the University University of East Anglia, which is very, very left-wing in those days. And she held a reception for all of the different heads of conservative associations at universities around the country. And um, I didn't even own a seat. (laughs) I can remember driving down to Westminster about four hours early in my Ford Cortina Mark III. Oh, what a classic. It was orange. Um, And uh, arriving, I I can remember going to St. Stephen's Tavern probably at about three o'clock. And we then, eventually when it came time, we, we sort of got shown up the stairs with all the photographs and, uh, on the side of the wall. And there she is at the top of the stairs. I thought, oh my God, she's tiny. She's literally five foot four. Politicians are always taller or shorter Well, as you think you of thought. somebody like her... As somebody yeah, like a giant. Big, yeah, a bit yeah, like you. Yeah, I am a giant compared to five foot four. And, and so you get to the top of the stairs, she puts out her hand... You shake her hand, and as you're shaking it, she guides you into the room so she doesn't have everyone trying to stop to talk to her. And my main memory of that evening was standing in the middle of the reception room 
And I have a very low tolerance for alcohol. And I had two glasses of wine. And I thought, no, I better not have another one. But then you, you feel a bit of an idiot if you don't have a glass in your hand of these things. So I got another one. As I took a sip from it, she walked past. But it wasn't wine. It was whiskey and water, which is her favourite tipple. And I just felt myself heaving. <laughs> and luckily, I managed to hold it in. But I know what would have happened. If I had been sick on her feet she would have been the one that would be fussing around clearing it up. She wouldn't leave it to the waitresses to do it. She would be on, the, on her knees um, doing My dad herself. will be so pleased that that story ended with Margaret Thatcher made me sick. Um, <laughs> is, uh, I'm glad that that's the way it went. So anyway, so, so I've got that invitation on the wall and then I've got a letter. I did a, uh, I used to run a, a political bookshop in Westminster and for the fifth anniversary, we did a, a big dinner at the Savoy. Uh, there were about 500 people there and she was the guest of honour. Her, her book, Statecraft, had just come out. But three weeks beforehand, she had her first stroke. Mm. So I thought, oh, my God. Anyway, they said she would still come, but she wouldn't Oof. do a speech. Lucky. And my, t- my task for the whole evening was to stop her getting to a microphone, <laughs> which I lamentably failed in, because right at the end, everyone was up on their feet, chanting 10 more years. Even like the likes of Kevin, I think Kevin Maguire was there. <laughs> I'm not sure he was chanting, but it was, it was quite an evening. And as everyone was cheering... She went for the microphone and I, I, Dennis was the other side of me and I was talking to him and I can remember this as if it's in slow motion. I turned around and I saw her making a beeline for this. So I ran after her and she, she got to the microphone and she boomed into it. And I still got the recording of this somewhere. Thank you. Thank you for that reception. It's the kind of reception that only an ex-prime minister can get. And I had my arm right round her waist, pulling her away from it at that time. You had to be there. I mean, (laughs) also, my dad would like that story as well, trying to get Margaret Thatcher not to the mic. But I mean, what? I mean, she's a, it's a, Phenomenon, and so far no one's had a letter from Thatcher. Tony Blair was writing letters to everyone. It seems everyone who's come on seems to have a letter from Tony Blair. I've got a letter from Tony. There Blair. There you go. Actually, I mean, there's wrote, no one in the country. When we opened Politicos, he wrote me a good luck letter, and it was actually his signature. It wasn't a sort of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Lorraine's kid. It was uh, like it was about yeah. dog poo, and. It was definitely from him, yeah. um, and he didn't know it was Lorraine's kid. Uh, so, you know, he was writing letters to everyone. He must have been doing nothing else oh, but fine. writing letters. <laughs> um, so, I've asked you to think of three different people. Yep. Um, so, the first one is a person who means the world to you. So, who have you picked for that one? Well, I'm gonna, I've picked somebody that you know very well, mm-hmm. Jackie Smith. Oh, it was a great choice. Um, she rolled her eyes at me this morning as I was checking out of the oh, hotel. She, and me all the time. she was checking out of the hotel, and I definitely looked considerably worse for wear. <laughs> and she was acting very mumsy towards me. <laughs> so tell me why you've picked Jackie. Well, I was thinking when you sent through what you wanted mm. me to do, um, who are my best friends? And I'm not somebody who has like. 50 really good friends and I don't think you can have 50 really good friends because you haven't got the time to devote to friendships with 50 people so you have a lot of friends in inverted commas in politics I think it's really difficult to make proper friends and I know plenty of people who've been at the center of political scandals and people who they thought were their friends drop them immediately and I've collected a, a group of friends or acquaintances who've been involved in sort of some sort of political difficulty or some sort of difficulty in their public life and because i no matter what they've done 
even if they are sort of totally banged to rights, mm. I always feel sorry for them because it must be awful to go through something like that. Well, we're all banged to rights sometimes. Well, aren't quite. We? And me most days on Twitter. <laughs> and I had a political blog in sort of like 2005 to 2010. And it was, it wasn't kind of Guido Fawkes, but it was like sub Guido Fawkes. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to be a Tory candidate at the time. So it was very partisan. Mm -hmm. And I wrote some terrible things about Jackie when she was Home Secretary. And in one of our podcasts, I read them all out to her again. (laughs) You can do that to your friends, can't you? (laughs) Anyway, when she uh, resigned as Home Secretary, after all of her, should we say, little local difficulties... Mm -hmm. I, I started a magazine called Total Politics and every, in every issue I would do an interview with somebody, some big name figure. And it was one of those verbatim ones, sort of, you would write yeah. the question and it, I mean, it was edited to the extent that you'd correct all the grammar because when, when you speak it's different. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really expect her to say yes, but I had met her at um, the Foreign Office, bizarrely, when she was Home Secretary, David Miliband had done a, some, an event for the staff of the Foreign Office and she was the speaker. And I was, I was writing a profile of him and Ed for GQ. And so I spent the day with each of them. And at the end of it, he was chatting to her and then he sort of saw me in the third row and he beckoned me over and I was thinking, oh, shit. Because... So he introduced me and she gave me that look and said, yeah, I know who you are. So that <laughs> She's was, good at that look, Jackie. Yeah, she is. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little bit awkward. So anyway, she did agree to do this interview, which was really surprising. And we just hit it off. I mean, you know, just somehow, when you meet somebody for the first time, you just click. And I think we were there for three hours doing this interview. And... Anyway, she then obviously lost, lost her seat. And she was quite honest in this interview as well, given what she'd been through. She lost her seat. And I was doing paper reviews for Sky with like Zoe Williams, Yasmin Alibar-Brown. And then I thought, actually, I think she and I would make quite a good pairing. So I suggested to Sky that that should happen. And that was sort of the beginning of, mm-hmm. well, what we now have. We, we dumped Sky in, in 2017 and gone, went to Good Morning Britain. So we do that every Friday. And then we started For The Many podcast five years ago. And that's become almost a bit of like oral political history, mm-hmm. where... I was listening to an old episode the other day, and of course you don't remember what you've course, said. Yeah. And we've just got this chemistry, I suppose, that people really like to watch. Or, yeah. And I mean, the, the things that people say to us about sort of, oh, you should get married. And, <laughs> I, and I think, I, I hope I've been for her because she's been there for her because she's had a few difficult yeah, times. Yeah, especially in the last five years. Yeah, yeah. and she's sort of, her marriage is mm. finished and... Um, she's just somebody that makes me feel good and that's what you want from a friend yeah. and she's been there for me in one or two difficult moments as well and it's not fussy I, I would say the way that Jackie looks after people it doesn't it's not a fuss it's just it's yeah. it's, it's, it's straight up sensible like it, you don't feel like it's overbearing yeah. but you feel like she cares is what I yeah. would say she's a very very good woman and I'm I just want her to be happy yeah it's funny, um, another a mutual friend of mine and uh, Jackie's, uh, when um, she was going through some tougher times, he was saying, oh, you know, I'm just not sure anyone's ever going to be good enough for her. And I was just like, <laughs> she's got loads of men who think, well, what if he's not good enough? Like, uh, like I just I thought that's really nice that she's engendered yeah. that sort of thing um, in people. But, you know, you, I mean, you come from, how does she feel now about all the things that you said about her? Does she just think, oh, that's, it's the game we're in? 
Well, I assume she does. Otherwise, we, w- we wouldn't have got to this point. She could be I, I plotting a very long. I mean, it's always isn't it's always difficult when someone's gone through an experience like that, where it, it wasn't just sort of one. It was kind of an accumulation that, in the end, she I think she felt she had no alternative to resign. And we have talked about this on the podcast quite a bit, but you don't want to obsess about it. You don't want yeah. to, and, and she gets a load of shit on Twitter from trolls sort of yeah. saying, well, saying to me, how can you be friends with that, that woman? And then she, there is nobody who fits the standard though. No. I mean, I, I had a million things about you that when I was like, I'm doing this thing later, yeah. you'll have a million things yeah. about me that nobody, there is nobody who fits the standard for people who are going to troll on no. Twitter. Jackie, funnily enough, I actually think she was the beginning, the era of social media and 24-hour news while she was, it was sort of coming to its fruition. She's almost the sort of perfect example of the beginning of this idea of women, politicians being quite so violently vilified and Mm. held to a different standard i remember my husband saying to me in the jackie smith years of her being home secretary she's he said like if it said on the front page of the newspapers like jackie smith eats babies for breakfast i wouldn't be surprised it's like literally like every single Mm. day and so much of it was just because she was a woman there was a huge amount of vilification she was and remains i think i'm right in saying the most senior female Labour politician. She does. Because she got the, one right. of the great officers of state. Yeah, I suppose the deputy leader. The, uh, no, she, but Harriet I was agree. never deputy prime that's, minister. That's true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right, she wasn't. Which I got Keir to guarantee that Angela would be. Yeah, well, on, well, on Thursday. good, good. Well done, you. That didn't make a headline, though, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think you're right that... There, there is still this inherent misogyny in political discourse, and particularly among a certain group of people. Yeah, yeah. I do really feel like Jackie was... You experience that every day of the week. Jackie was the beginning of it, and so how she continues to just be cheery all the time. But can you imagine... I mean, Twitter did exist at the time, yeah. but it was only in its infancy. And can you imagine what would it be like now with uh, on MPs' expenses, on yeah. any, any kind of thing like that? And, and there's no... And it's like, if you don't resign within 24 hours, then the Prime Minister has failed. He should have got rid of blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, that is not healthy. No, it's not. It's not. So how would you sign off a letter to Jackie? What would you say to her? I I thought about writing this, (laughs) but I, I, I haven't written it. How would I... I would say... You have meant more to a lot of people than you probably think you have. You've had more influence on people than you probably think you have. I valued you in my life as a friend, and I hope you feel the same way. Oh, I'm sure she does. Um, <laughs> she's never told me otherwise. Which I would be. I'm an ind- I'm indiscreet sort of person. <laughs> So the second person I asked you to think about was somebody who's no longer with us. So yeah. who will that be? That would be my grandmother, which I suspect might be a typical choice for people, sort of picking somebody from their family who's had a real influence. But without my grandmother, I would not be sitting here today. And my grandmother was quite a regal figure. She was known as the Duchess or the Queen Mother. 
Um, she had no sort of posh background or anything. In fact, quite the reverse. But she was quite a feminist. She was born in 1894. Oof. So she two days ago would have been her 126th birthday. Wow. And she came from a farming stock in Essex and Cambridgeshire. And all of her family had always been in that line and continued to be. And um, I mean, I, I was... I grew up on a farm and had I been born 10 years earlier than I was, I'm sure I would have inherited the farm and continued that. But she was a quite a powerful woman. She lived with us. Can't have been easy for my mother. <laughs> and she and I used to have terrible rows like when I was a teenager. I mean, quite vicious. But at the end of the day, I couldn't quite bring myself to apologise to her, so I would slip a note under her bedroom door. <laughs> I mean, literally every time this happened. Um, and I remember this would have been when we were choosing... At my school, which is a comprehensive in Saffron Walden, you could only do German if you were any good at French. And I, had, well, I, was, I wasn't good at French, but I was better than a lot of the other mm -hmm. people in the class. We had terrible French teachers, a different one every year. And I, I remember going back and saying, oh, they want me to do German, but why would I want to do German? And she said, well, you never know what will come of it. Mm. She said, if you don't like it, stop doing it. But it meant I had to give up PE, which I quite liked sport. Really? I mean, I, I would have been thrilled. <laughs> I was, thrilled, I, mean, I, was I was thrilled I didn't have to play rugby anymore. I was really I hated shit rugby. at German, so I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't, might not have been thrilled, actually. So the, the reason I say that's, and that was the moment that was a sort of sliding doors moment, was because I, I turned out to be really bad at German, first of all. Mm -hmm. Didn't understand it, it just didn't get me. And then I went on a school exchange trip to Germany for three weeks, and I came back and I then topped the class in the end of year exam. My teacher thought I'd cheated because I was just honestly so terrible. And it all went from there. And I remember David Lewis, who I could have picked as the, for, the, mm. for the next choice, mm -hmm. actually. He was head of languages at the school. And one day, he asked me a question one day in German, and I responded in German. And he said, why did you say it like that? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, that's brilliant because that's the first sign of fluency mm. when you don't know why you've said something that is correct, which is quite surprised to me because I thought it was going to give, give me a bollocking. Um, so I then did German at A-level and it was really the only subject that I was really good at. I enjoyed history and I enjoyed geography, but most of the other subjects I was pretty, I mean, science, mm. I got great ungraded at physics O-level, for example. Um, and then I decided I wanted to be a German teacher. So I applied to various universities uh, to do German, but I didn't want to do German literature. I just wanted to do German language, and there weren't many universities where you could do that. So um, I put East Anglia as my first. I, th I remember going to an interview at Aston. Oh, but lovely Aston. I mean, saw it from the motorway, but thought, how, you, how the fuck do you get there? It is, do you know what? <laughs> Sometimes when I go to things at Aston University still, I am like, where is the turn? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's I literally, like, I've missed it, and now I'm going on the ring so, road again. Anyway, at that point, I mean, University of East Anglia was known as the University of Easy Access. Um, <laughs> they, they offered me two Cs. I said, thank you very much. I did get better than that. <laughs> And had the most wonderful four years of my life um, studying German there. Went on, a, I had a gap year and then I did another year in Germany in the middle. And because I'd done the gap year, I was fluent when I, when I went there. No German knew that I was English. I was that fluent. And it put me a, ahead of anybody else in my class. And 
And it also, even though I was only a year older than everybody else, it felt like five years because they were still, they'd only just come from school, mm. whereas I'd had this year on my own. And that really made me grow up. But then, of course, at UEA, I discovered politics. Ended up working for um, the two Labour MPs in Norwich at that time. In the, in the 83 election, they both got beaten by Conservatives. And I ended up working in the House of Commons at the same time as Jackie Smith, funnily enough, yeah, but we never met. So I spent two years doing that. And it was all because I got introduced to German. Now, would I have gone to... Um, none of my family... I mean, it's a bit like Neil yeah. Kinnock, the first Dale in a thousand generations <laughs> to go to university. Would I have gone to university... I mean, I was destined to go to agricultural college. That yeah. is what I, I should have done. I didn't know that was a thing, you know, until I went to university yeah. and I was there with some people who were from the countryside. Yeah. I was like, uh, you did, ag- they used to call it ag, ag at school. <laughs> I was like, that. I don't, what is this thing you're saying? We don't do ag in Birmingham. No. <laughs> well, I didn't do it either because I was so shit at sciences. I wouldn't have got in anyway. So I, I don't know what I would have done had I not done German initially. So that was, and she was also quite political. Um, very conservative. One of my earliest political memories was in on February the 11th, 1975, running upstairs to tell her that Margaret Thatcher had been elected leader of the Conservative Party. And she burst into tears. Now, I'm sure your dad did as well. Oh, 100%. Um, but <laughs> she did because she, I, I, said, I said to her, well, why are you crying? She said, because I never thought I would see the day when a woman would lead a political mm. party. And she lived to see her be prime minister and died six months later. Um, so yeah, I, I think about somebody on your podcast, I can't remember who it was, said that they think about, I think Fee Glover said this, that they think about their, her, she thinks about her grandmother more and more. And I do too. Not just in the sense that I would love her to have seen what I'd done, because mm. she would have got a real kick. <laughs> well, she would have got a real kick out of seeing me on television because she would have rung up her sister and sort of bragged about it. <laughs> Bragging rights matters. Yeah, very, very yeah. competitive family. Yeah, I would love her to have sort of seen what I'd done. And when you say she was very conservative, do you think that she she would have been totally accepting of your life in every way? My homosexuality. Yeah, your homosexuality. Maybe if she'd got a free B and a BA flight, she'd have turned <laughs> blow and die. I think she would, actually, possibly more so than my mother. Uh, I mean, I didn't come out to my parents until I was 40, and I'm glad I'm only forty. It will, yeah. Well, think about it. Yeah, that is that's and that's could, well. It's a whole lifetime. Uh, and I'm slightly ashamed to say it was because I decided at that point I wanted to be a Tory MP, and I got through to the second round of the selection at Chipping Barnet, mm-hmm. so which um, Theresa Villiers mm-hmm. eventually won. And I remember in the first round, the final question, which I didn't know they asked everything, everyone, saying, is there anything about your private life that's embarrassing, blah, blah, blah. So I just said, well, it's not embarrassing to me and I hope it's not embarrassing to you, but you should know that I'm gay. But you should also know that I support West Ham, which is probably worse. (laughs) And they they all roared with laughter at that. And I remember the agent rushing out, who was also gay, rushing out of the meeting, saying, what the bloody hell did you do that for? You've just lost votes in there by doing that. So I remember driving home around the M25 and phoning up David Davis, who's a good friend, and he said, oh, how did it go? And I said, well, I think I've blown it. And he said, no, you, you were right to do it. Uh, to cut a long story short, I was two votes off getting into the final. And I'm convinced I mean, to this day... could have gone in the bin, frankly. <laughs> yeah, but I'm convinced to this day that had I not done that, 
I would have then been the MP for Chipping Barnet because it would have been up against two women in the final. And in those days, mm. one bloke against two women, the bloke always wins. Also, Theresa Villiers is rubbish. <laughs> That's very uncharitable of you. She's been a very good MP. <laughs> I'm sure the people of Chipping Barnet will make but themselves I, I, known at the next election. But I do, I do wonder whether it was for the best in the end. Yeah. Because I quite like, like well, my life at the moment. And also, you're sliding doors, your granny saying yeah. that to you. You know, actually, I think on something quite so fundamental, I don't see you had any other choice. Uh, also, it would come out anyway. Yeah. And, you know, like, then actually the guilt you'd have felt if you walked out that room and not told it, that, that, that's, that's what causes but you anxiety know, for a long, long what, time. What made it, when, I did, when I did get selected in North Norfolk for the 2005 election... Um, and it was a marginal seat. I turned it into a safe Liberal mm. Democrat seat. Well um, <laughs> I remember a few days after I was selected, being at the Tory party conference, and this, I don't know, 20, 22-year-old guy came up to me. And he goes, I just want to thank you. And I thought, well, I don't know who you are. What, why, why do you want to thank me? What have I done? And he said, because you've made it easier for the rest of us. Oh, yeah, I mean, and that's what matters. And, of course, I was written up as the first ever candidate yeah. to say they were gay before the selection meeting and if you're the first to do anything yeah. you get a sense of notoriety and I mean I remember Gabby Hinsliff in the Observer um, doing an article about Tory stars of the future and I mean I was quite pleased to be included mm-hmm. in it but it said the the openly gay conservative candidate and I thought you would not say the openly straight conservative yeah. candidate and I remember bringing up and saying can you just please not do that in fear. And she was mortified, yeah, to be fair to woman. her. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then uh, I then nearly got Bracknell, but the Daily Mail scuppered that by describing me as the overtly gay Conservative MP. Now, I am sitting here in a red suit, so that possibly this is not the ideal uh, <laughs> But I was really... I thought, well, how am I overtly gay? Or like, am I overtly straight? So I took... I'm acting very straight right now. Well, you are, actually. (laughs) Um, So I I took them to the Press Complaints Commission and lost. They said, oh, it's a diary column. People expect that. I thought, what? Yeah, that is... I was really angry. Oh, well, we've all got things we've been angry about the Daily Mail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how would you sign off a letter to your granny? What would you say to her? You were the biggest influence. Oh, <laughs> Everybody breath. always Deep cries. Breath. Don't worry. You've been the biggest influence on my life. Um, I, w- I wish you'd live to see what I achieved. Oh, I'm sure she'd be very, very, very proud of you. If for no other reason than bragging, like yeah. the desire to ring up. Yeah. I-, I used to hate my nan when she did things like that. I used to be like, oh, nan. She'd be like... Grabbing neighbours as they went past, like, <laughs> just, just, how are you? Oh, I'm good. But Our she, dress is here and she's just got into the grammar. But she, anyway, bye. She, she would do it on our exam results because most of my cousins went to private school and they didn't get an O-level between them. Whereas <laughs> I went to the comp and did, and my sisters did. Um, but that came back to bite me because I was on the Jeremy Vine show once. I, can't, I think we were talking about private, public yeah. versus private. And um, I said this about, well, of course, none of my cousins got an O-level to rub together. And of course, one of them was watching. <laughs> and, I, and, and it got back to me that he'd been watching. And we, I was at his mother's funeral. Oh. And I was thinking, I know I'm going to have to speak to him. But to be fair to him, he said, um, he said, well, you were right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You can't actually buy an education. No, of 
quite. Oh God, that is orcs though. I'm frequently <laughs> like, shit, what have I said about somebody in public? Yeah. Uh, my friend Ruth, who's a midwife, she's always just like, oh, how has my life uh, and my profession been politically expedient for you this week? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, do, do you need something else? Do you need is there anything else that could be politically expedient? Because, you know, there's a midwife story you need, which I always find amusing. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So the last person I asked you to think about was um, somebody who wouldn't know how much of an effect they've had on your life. Who would that be? There were quite a few contenders for this, including my partner, but I thought that's a bit predictable because John is a very private and shy person and doesn't (laughs) like the limelight, doesn't really understand why I sort of revel in it. (laughs) But we've been together for 27 years, which in gay terms is a century. (laughs) It's that like dog years. Yeah. Yeah, And we've never had an argument. I mean, not a real door slamming sort of you're a... What, never? I I nearly said a very bad word there. (laughs) Never. I mean, you obviously sort of have disagreements and bicker a bit, but we've never had a serious argument. Oh, we have one a day. Do you? Well, not so much now our kids are older. When the kids were little, I mean, you, I suppose you really want to shout at your kids a lot, yeah. like, and you can't, so you have to shout at them. But given my temperament, where I, I can explode, mm. and then 10 seconds later, I'm back on an even keel. Mm. I, I've worked out over the years, a lot of people find that really difficult to deal with, particularly in the workplace. Mm. So I've tried to sort of dampen that down a little bit. Um, 
but he sort of copes with my idiosyncrasies very well and probably better than anyone else could ever have done and he's kind of been the the, the rock I know it's a cliche <laughs> but he really has been the rock in my life so but you I, didn't want to pick him well I I just thought it was a bit predictable so I'm going to pick my friend Daniel Bryce okay Dan came into our lives about six years ago um, a friend of his was renting uh, this is going to sound really awful renting one of our barns darling <laughs> It's all right. You're allowed to and have barns. So we would sort of chat to him a bit and he'd come in for a coffee. And Dan is built like a brick shit house. He's got a lovely face, but shall we say he could do with losing a few pounds? I'm sure he'll listen to this. What so a lovely he'll hate me for saying you're this. making to him. Yeah. But he's, he's one of these larger than life people who's got a real sort of um, down to earth guy, got an anecdote about everything, a complete womanizer. Um, I mean, if we, I'm quite fancy, Dan. No, really. believe me, you would get on like a house on fire with him, and he would love you. And it, it, you drive with him somewhere, and it, I don't know if I can. No, I better not say this. But he he will relate anecdotes of a, a lady that he has been <laughs> close with. Yes, <laughs> and he's just hilarious. And he was living with his girlfriend and they had a a son called Alfie and they split up and he hadn't got anywhere to live. So we said, well, you can stay in our spare room if you want for a bit. Anyway, four years later, I always say that this is going to sound a bit pervy, but he would like walk around the house in his boxes Mm -hmm. and luckily neither of us at all ever (laughs) fancied him, which he thinks is awful. I already fancy him. Because he thinks he's irresistible to everybody. I think he used to get quite a kick out of telling his friends that he lived with two gay guys because he is the straightest of straight guys and thinks that gay sex is disgusting. (laughs) And anyway, so he then had this idea to start up a forestry machinery company. And I thought it sounded really good. He'd done a proper business plan and everything. So we put a bit of money in it and, and sort of got a share of the equity. And he's built this company up into something quite amazing. He's the best salesman you could ever encounter. Well, you can sell anything I've got to, to say, everyone. A charming. I, see, I mean, really, I really you fancy want to meet him. him now, but, I mean, don't I you? really fancy okay. him now. I mean, everything you're right. saying about him is don't like that. Don't yeah. Putty in your hands. <laughs> I can't wait. Anyway, he has proved to be the most loyal, trustworthy friend that anyone could have, and. I mean, sometimes your friends let you down, don't they? And yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine a situation where Dan would let us down. And I'll give you an example of this. When I fell off the stage at Buxton Opera House and um, fell into the orchestra pit, this was uh, mid-afternoon, so I got taken to, the, to A&E and I had my car there. And I was thinking, well, how do I get home? So who do I phone? Dan, because... I just thought, well, he, he he will drop everything to come and get me. In Buxton? In Buxton. From Saffron from, Walden? No, or? from Guildford. From he Guildford. Li- lives, in, lives near Guildford now. Um, That's quite the uh, ass. But he's got a depot for the company in yeah. Derby, which isn't that far from Buxton. Yeah. So he drove his car up to the depot, left it there, and got a work colleague to drive into Buxton. And he drove me home. And uh, <laughs> we, I said... But after about 10 minutes, I've got to have a peek. I haven't had a wee all day and it got to before we get on the motorway. So now we'll stop at services. I said, I can't walk, Dan. 
So we had this rather hilarious incident where I said, well, look, stop in the lay-by, open the back door so no one can see, and I'll just wee out of the door, just sort of manoeuvre myself around. He goes, I haven't got to get your cock out, have I? (laughs) Should have been like, yeah. (laughs) No, no, really. And believe me, I wasn't in the mood for any of that at that point. And so we get home, and I'm thinking, well, how do I get... Because our house is built into a hillside, so the, 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 all the stuff is upstairs. How do I get up the stairs? Oh, I'll give you a fireman's lift. That didn't really work. Um, and then I get to eventually like, go up the stairs backwards, get to the top, and I said, well, I can't get up. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll lay you on my back with my hands above my head, and you'll have to drag me. Which he, which he did. And I was relating... You're making him sound fitter and fitter by the minute. It's like, it's like a Neanderthal dragging a man. Like, it's like red rags <laughs> to a He is a, a bit of a Neanderthal, it has to be said. <laughs> and so, I was relating this anecdote to someone the other day or boring them with it. And they said, well, he's your body shifter, isn't he? I said, what's a body shifter? And they said, somebody you ring up at two o'clock in the morning when you've killed, killed someone somebody, and you want yeah. them to go and dispose of the body. So I told Dan this. He said, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just... Just a real character, and we love him to and death. And you don't think that he knows that what an effect he's had on your life? Well, I'm not. People don't often think I in those terms think, because that's I mean, he, not he, natural. He's always telling us what effect we've had on his life, but I don't think he understands it's the reverse as well. Yeah. It's, a, it's a two-way street. These things. I mean, it's not. It's not all give, and it's not yeah. all take. And I mean, he, he frustrates the hell out of us sometimes with some of mm. the things he does, but he's not got. A sort of I don't think he's got an evil bone in his body and he will do anything for anyone and I think sometimes he's taken advantage of a little bit and he's always looking for a deal so he loves buying and selling cars and motorbikes and came home one day with a boat <laughs> what, what, what on earth are you going to do with that oh well, I can make five grand on that <laughs> I love anybody who's chasing the next dream I yeah. absolutely love that honestly he sounds like my perfect man um, sorry Tom <laughs> sorry, uh, <laughs> sorry Tom never mind we had a good run <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is more than anyone expected from us um, so how would you sign off a letter to Dan what would you say to him um think twice before you make big decisions if we're not around find somebody like us to stop you doing something you might regret because he is quite impetuous but it's funny he will come up with a business idea which he thinks is the world's best business idea and then i will tell him why it isn't and he immediately accepts it without question um and i think everyone did he invent apple and you told him not to do that no no it's not (laughs) not quite at that stage um but he will be a very rich man one day i think well he sounds excellent well thank you so much ian for sharing all your lovely people it is nice just to sit and celebrate people so thank you so much for your time and thanks for having me in edinburgh it's been a total joy what a great idea for a podcast i wish i'd have had it i already do six podcasts i could have done a seventh well done you (laughs) thanks (laughs) thank you so much for listening to this episode of yours sincerely with jess phillips If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Hold up. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.